Well, what's up and welcome to Sweathead with Mark Pollard. I have Sahir Mehdi, who's a strategist at CodeWord in Dallas. I also have Kate Enderley, who's a VP strategy director at Edelman in Dallas. We met last week. We discussed some of the adjectives that get put in front of the word strategist. We also discussed some of the programs that agencies have done in the name of, I will call it inclusion, that sometimes could be done a little bit differently. And we're going to talk about that today. Welcome both of you. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for having us on. Yes, thanks so much, Mark. We talked about at least two topics. I'll start with the topic that Sahir, I, I remember us talking about, which was how sometimes agencies run programs for people who are not white in parallel to programs that seem to be for people who are white. Could you tell me about your observations of this dynamic? I feel very open-minded. The intentions there were very good. And I guess I could talk about my experience there first and how I learned about the program at this uh, PR firm. It was actually through my grad school program. We had one of the senior VPs come and, and speak about their internship program. And then also they were starting up the uh, Fleshman Hillard Fellowship as well. It was quite intriguing to me. Felt like there was an opportunity for me there. I immediately applied for it got the referral from one of the EVPs who is BIPOC. And immediately they enrolled me in the program. And it was cool. It was very much at the start of the internship program as well. And there were about 10 people in that program. And then in the diversity program, it was about 10 people. But day one, you could instantly tell quite the contrast between the two groups. One very much focused on BIPOC and the other mostly white. That was very intriguing to me, but I thought nothing of it. This was my first gig right out of grad school. And I thought this was just normal. This is just what it is. And as I was going through the program, it was quite fascinating because the treatment was, was a little different as well. We were treated as more special in a way too. And the nuances I'm remembering were things like a leather-bound notepad for the fellows and the interns had just regular notepads. And at the end of it, we were given a, a clock where it was inscribed Alfred Fleshman Diversity Fellow uh, with my name on it and nothing for the interns of that level, which I thought was a bit bizarre. And so it was very much these Band-Aid solutions from my perspective. You know, they wanted to show that they cared. And quite frankly, it reminded me of like, you know, someone that you're dating for a few weeks and the boyfriend shows up with flowers and extravagant candles. And it's like, do you actually really care? Is this all just an aesthetic you're trying to showcase? Was there actually anything real to it? The dynamic you described has other words. Also, if you're dealing with a narcissist, it's called love bombing. That is certainly a perspective of someone who's lived through that. How, quote unquote, accurate do you feel that perspective is? Because I'm sure there's at least one other perspective, which is that we invested in this program in this way to try to fix some of the stuff that has not been good. The reason why I don't think that perspective applies in this case, how long ago was that, Sahara, if I may ask? Yeah, this was back in 2014. Okay, so not super long ago. The intentions may have been good, but the approach is dated. So I don't think that it, was, that it was wrong. It's just that, let's say the last decade, that approach 
to integrating people of color into the advertising industry or into the communications industry is just a dated model. And I think that's going to be the theme of a lot of things that I talk about today is that it's not a wrong approach. There was a time when that was needed and when it was necessary. And in some places, some industries, it's actually still necessary to approach it that way. But the approach is dated. And what I mean by that is that an alternative approach would have been to integrate them with the other interns and create an environment where everyone kind of got the same thing, but ensure that within the general pool of interns, there was representation for people of color. Treating them as kind of a separate group is a part that feels dated. And we can go into that as we talk about that. But that's my perspective is that it wasn't that it was made, they may have bad, had bad intentions, but they're applying a dated uh, model of diversity and inclusion to a time when it's not, you don't need to approach it that way. I have to agree. And this was all coming from hindsight too, in the middle of it. I was just focused on the work. I was very much focused on getting to the next chapter of my career and making sure that I had that on my resume. It was definitely an experience I don't regret having, but there were definitely moments where I did feel marginalized. I felt like they were putting me on this pedestal and treating me special because I'm brown. And they didn't need to do that. We all had come from different back, varied backgrounds and you know, we all were trying to you know, start our careers at a PR firm that's globally known and we're happy to have that on our resume. They were forcing their perception on us versus actually trying to get to know us individually. So we're going to talk about job titles in a second, but do you hear about programs like this now? What, what is it, eight years later? It's funny because I remember, Mark, when I had mentioned it to you, I was curious. I was like, are they still running it? Like, what's going on? Looks like they still are, but they do specify the different specialties. So if you are into UX strategy, they'll add that to the fellowship, whereas it was just by itself, just the fellowship that you were participating in. And so there's just that little nuance that I've noticed. So there's a division between the word intern or internship and the word fellow or fellowship, where the fellow or fellowship is mostly for people of color. And it's known is the issue because people weren't integrated with each other as interns. When we spoke in Dallas, we both caught up in Dallas with a group of strategists at the happiest hour recently, and it was great to see people there. I think you introduced yourself to me as a multicultural strategist. Tell us about how you are a multicultural strategist. First, it's, we need to clarify like, how I define multicultural and why I believe that I'm a multicultural strategist. So going back to what I was saying you know, regarding uh, Sahara's situation, that multicultural in the past was defined, if you said you're a multicultural strategist or multicultural marketing, let's say like mid-century to maybe even like the late 90s, it meant that you specialized, it was like almost code for people of color, right? Like Black and Latinx communities. You specialized in marketing communications having to do with those groups because it was recognized in the mid-century that you needed special advertising to appeal to those groups because they had unique sensibilities and unique cultural nuances that need, required and demanded that we create communications specifically for them. That has since evolved and changed. So you have that first era. There's a, a second phase where it was, okay, we can't just treat them as a separate, these groups as, as separate segments. We need to just make sure that we incorporate them into general marketing. So that's the era of like, I would say the nineties to like the mid two thousands, where it was about making sure that in general marketing, there was representation and that we accounted for insights for people of color. So that's kind of like the total marketing era, right? We're going to create a general marketing, but we're going to make sure we include people of color. The new era of multicultural marketing is about getting people to understand that there's been a power and a demographic shift in America where people of color are becoming the majority. 
in influence and in numbers. So a multicultural strategist in this day and age doesn't only mean that you specialize in teaching people how to best communicate with people of color. It means that you're actually teaching them how to transition into a new America. And I think that's a much bigger undertaking than just saying, hey, I specialize in, I speak for people of color and I'm the expert on how to communicate with Black and Hispanic people or Black and Latinx people. So when I call myself a multicultural strategy, I'm talking about in the context of this new phase of multicultural marketing that we're talking about, the phase where a multicultural strategist's job is to show how the demographic shift in America affects strategy and kind of walking everybody into this new phase and kind of reframing America, the demographic shift in America for the advertising and the PR community. So I guess when I called myself a multicultural strategist to you, that's what I meant, but maybe you interpreted it in the kind of the older definition of multicultural strategy. I think maybe, I'm not 100% sure, but maybe that's where the disconnect was between you and me. Oh, totally. I still remember being in my first few months in New York and someone talked about general market. I was like, it seems like a euphemism. What are you talking about? And there was this pause and it felt guilty. And I remember them saying, you know, general market. And I was like, I still don't know what you mean. And then I was like, okay, I get it based on the cities you're in. I understand that you're basically saying white people and many of them in the Midwest. I think that's what you're talking about. And that seems like an unusual thing. 10 years ago, 2012, I just was like, that's an unusual thing. And I would interview strategists to hire who were in multicultural agencies and they would talk about how they only got opportunities in multicultural agencies. So that was the energy that I was bringing to that title. Whereas what I've come to think, because I've interviewed people about this on this podcast, what I now understand is that that still might go on and that's not good. But there's also a person involved with work in advertising, but also in HR. The work that they do, it's different from what I was thinking, which is being a strategist, marginalized, interacting with a community that's marginalized versus bringing into light strategists and communities who've traditionally been marginalized, but giving them more power, more access, and more energy. So those words didn't come out right. So that was the thing that I didn't understand. I took it at face value based on 10 years ago where I was like, why are you diminishing, not you, but why is the industry still diminishing people? Because also we had just spoken about Sahir's uh, point of view and experience as well. I would argue in defense of, let's say, the agencies back in like the 90s, like, you know, Burrell and some other agencies that specialized in multicultural marketing. I don't see it as diminishing in any way. I think it just at that time required it and it called for it. People needed to recognize at that time that there was a culture within America that had specific nuances and had specific you know, needs as a culture that needed to be catered to. So I think that for that era, it worked really well. I've worked in that era of advertising and I enjoyed doing it. So I don't think it's necessarily one is more diminishing than the other. I just think that this new era calls for a different definition of multicultural strategy and marketing. And just to be clear on this point, because it could get rusted into people a multicultural agency isn't an inherent act of diminishment of anybody. It's amazing. But I know people who've been diminished and put into a corner and weren't allowed to play anywhere else because of their skin color. They're two separate points. So I'm not making a point about any of these agencies being bad or lower or anything. Again, I think it's all about how people perceive the word multicultural and how they define it. In this current day and age, it's about if I say I'm a multicultural strategist, that means I'm a brand strategist for a new America. That's how I interpret it and how I define it and how I want people to receive it. And make sure that it's integrated. It's part of that larger DNA of the work. In my experience, there hasn't been a good 
like there's the framework, there's the system of it where we're, you know, there's the transcultural mainstream versus the multicultural and working with multicultural agencies. But the output, the work and the insights from it aren't so strong. What I mean by that is, and this is my experience at Saatchi and Saatchi working for Toyota, where they have the T-squared agencies. A lot of the work and output from the multicultural agencies was an afterthought. The Saatchi and Saatchi, which was the TCM agency general market, was the larger insight. And then we would connect with the other multicultural agencies to understand those different nuances. But it wasn't integrated in the greater thinking. I would even go a step further uh, to her and say that I don't think it should be just integrated. I think it should be led with multicultural because of the changing them. And, and that's the argument. I don't want to sound like a broken record, but I think that's why when I stand a multicultural strategist, I actually don't think it's diminishing. I actually think it's a progressive title now because what it represents is that I feel that strategy should be multicultural led, not just inclusive of multicultural, but led by it. And that's the way of the future. So I actually see it as a very progressive title in this day and age for that reason. How do you get brought into projects to be a multicultural strategist? Are you leading or do you get brought in to consult? Is it a combination? How does it work? I technically don't have the title. From our perspective, from CodeWord's perspective, it's part of the just being real. It's integrated in the day-to-day. We're more of a reflection of the audience for the brands that we're working with is the perspective that resonates with me the most is the brands that you're working on. You want to make sure that the people that are working on the brand reflect that. And that can actually be dangerous too. I remember looking at Saatchi and Saatchi LA's website and Toyota being the biggest, largest account for them. And being a car company, it was primarily male dominated. All the leadership were, were all male. And they knew that that was a problem. So I think you have to be careful with how you perceive that. Okay. Kate, how does it work for you? What does your week look like? How do you get involved with projects? I'm fortunate that on my accounts right now, I shouldn't say on all of them, but on most of them, we actually lead with multicultural strategy, which is very rare. It's kind of a fairly new thing for a lot of agencies to think that way. Most agencies that I feel that I've come across are still in the, we include multicultural strategy, but we don't necessarily lead with it. But I can actually say that on at least one or two of the accounts that I work on that we lead with multicultural strategy. So I am like the main strategist on those accounts and I develop strategy through that filter. There are some other accounts that we're still, you know, working to get there with. And we're actually taking the initiative like as a strategy team to ensure that everyone functions as a multicultural strategist or everyone thinks that way so that we can guide our clients to also think that way. So I'll say for the most part, our department is pretty progressive in leading with that, but there's still some accounts here and there that we need to fight a little harder to get that. From a research point of view, how does it work? Because obviously multicultural is not monolithic. We're talking about lots of cultures, and even if people present with a similar skin color, there's many, many cultures. How do you do it? I've been like pushing for segmentation, what I call segmenting the segment. If you think of multicultural consumers, it's still a segment, which you shouldn't because it's so, it's so huge that it's more than a segment. It's America. But if you were to think about it that way, how do you segment them and address kind of intersectionality? So race and ethnicity, but intersecting with what else? Religion, interests and things like that. So I think the way to do that is that you don't just say you're targeting Blacks, African-Americans, 18 to 34. You add like a psychographic quality to that. You know, it could be African-American gamers, 18 to 34. So 
demographic targets are not enough because then you're almost kind of approaching it like a monolith and assuming that people are all only identify along demographic lines, race, ethnicity, and age. So I think adding on, on a layer of psychographics is a way to kind of acknowledge that they're not a monolith and that there's some kind of psychographic layers that come along in addition to race and age. If you spend your days trying to get into people's heads, but are interested in strategy classes, books, and events that get into your head, visit sweathead.com. You can pick up the Kickstarter-funded book, Strategy Is Your Words, by me. Find out about our monthly membership, online classes, and the company training that we do. Yes, this was an ad, a gentle, gentle ad. Back to the interview. I'm just going to ask you some clumsy questions, and you're going to teach me. If you were working with a national brand on a national campaign, and you knew that a a big part of their audience was what you just described. 18 to 34, I think you said, gamers, black. Would you focus the research on them and then work out how that might lead a national campaign for quote unquote everybody? Yes. The research would be focused on them primarily with representation from other groups. In the past, it was like, okay, we have to make sure that we have general market audience and then we make sure we have representation from black and Latinx, like in a focus group. Like we make sure we have, you know, I think like it should be flipped now in many cases. It's that if you're focusing on, let's say, black gamers, you might make sure that you have representation from, you know, in the focus groups of like a few white gamers, just so you have like an adequate representation of America. Right. But it's still people of color dominant, if that makes sense. So I don't think it should be the research would be exclusive to black gamers, but it would be dominated by black gamers, just as in the early days of marketing, research was dominated by white respondents with just a few Respondents of color sprinkled in. So we're just basically flipping the model. To both of you, and I know that, uh, Kate, you're more focused on this. So you would touch it, but it's different. How does Dallas, Texas, like affect this kind of work? Dallas, Texas as a whole. I mean, we're making it on the map, so to speak, right? Like I think generally speaking in the next decade or so, we're set to surpass Chicago as the third largest metropolitan city. So it's so fascinating to me because throughout my entire career, I've tried to actually leave Dallas because I want to see more of that reflection. I want to see more people of color in, in my work. And I didn't see that in the six years in the world of strategy and, and agency side. I always felt like I was just that token. And now I feel as though... I owe it to my city in a way to be here and to have that representation here because there's so many of us. There's lots of Kates in New York and Chicago and LA. And, you know, more people of color are moving down here. And so that change is happening day to day. And okay. so it's, it's nice to see that here. Kate? Ironically, Sahari, what I hear you saying is that from the Dallas ad industry isn't super diverse, but ironically, Dallas itself is incredibly diverse. I'm from Chicago and Cameroon. Uh, I grew up in Cameroon and then was born in Chicago and my mom is from there and I lived there. But moving down to Dallas, I was kind of taken aback by how diverse it is. Like, for example, on the street I live on, I think maybe 90% of my neighbors are people of color, either like first generation Americans or people of color. And that wasn't my idea of a Texan, you know, coming to the South. I pictured, you know, frankly, white, you know, male Southerner when I came. And, I, and that's not what I've witnessed the time I've been here. So I, Dallas is incredibly diverse and it's becoming even more diverse as a city. So my worldview about multiculturalism has even just been heightened. This idea that America is changing has just been heightened by my living in Dallas and being exposed to the communities that I'm exposed to here. 
What have you learned about Dallas, other than the fact that it's more multicultural, but like in what ways is it more multicultural? What have you learned about non-white people having moved to Dallas? Um, one, that it's not always welcomed. <laughs> not everyone is extremely happy about it. And I get it when a place has kind of had one kind of culture for a while, it can feel intimidating or, or kind of scary to like feel like people are moving in that don't look like people who were here for generations before. But it's happening. And I think it's a beautiful thing to see. I think it's just, I don't think I'm exaggerating at all. Because Sahara and I were talking about this when we met at the event that Dallas is basically like a representation of, well, I think at least Fort Worth, where I live, is incredibly diverse. And it's, what, it's where America is going. I think even Dallas is a couple of years ahead of, you know, diversity in terms of diversity than the rest of the country. So I think it represents what the rest of America will look like in the very near future. I'm excited about it. But I said, it's not always as well received, I feel. Maybe a personal thing to share, but I have a neighbor who barely says hi to me, who is white and is probably one of the few white people who live on the block. And that could just be that he doesn't like me personally. I don't know, but I have a feeling that it's not because of that. When you compare the agency or agencies you're familiar with and the clients you've worked with, do you feel that the agencies and the brands are struggling with similar things? Do you see more change happening in one compared to the other? I don't think I've made any clear observations or distinguished between the two. I do know that brands are looking for that, right? In terms of, of more of that diversity lens in, in the work that we do. But oftentimes we have to bring that forward. Does that answer your question? Just curious, based on your experience in your current agency or in other agencies you're familiar with, compared to the brand world, the client world, the non-agency world, is one trying to keep up with the other right now? Are they both lagging behind? Where is real change happening that you're seeing and that you appreciate? I would say the agency world is slightly ahead, but they kind of should be. We should be slightly ahead. We are the ones who I think we're supposed to have a pulse on the market um, from a consumer standpoint. So I think we've always been that. I think that's why clients look to us because we do kind of have a more progressive view on the world. So yes, I would say agencies are slightly ahead right now, but as they should be, because how can you serve clients when you're lagging behind in terms of your worldview and your perception of how America is changing. I'm sorry, it takes two to tango though, right? Like, you know, you need to have that person in-house or, you know, at that brand that is going to support that work. And oftentimes, just from my experience, when it's DE&I related, it doesn't take priority. For them, it's, are they hitting their numbers for the month? And is that lens, you know, going to actually, you know, make them the money that they want to make? for that particular period. So they get very focused on the current work and it's just not a priority for them. So I do feel, and maybe I'm just an optimist, in the last two years, I've seen some change in clients in terms of that. They're a lot more open just because of things that between the pandemic and just social justice incidents, things that have taken place in the last two years. I think I've seen clients kind of make that shift. They don't know how to move uh, forward. And that's why I look to agencies, but they at least are starting to recognize that we need to be a lot more progressive, especially when it comes to how we view multicultural strategy and advertising or how we define that. I will give them credit for like, especially in the last two years, having at least had an open mind and letting agencies kind of guide them and push them along, push them forward. I know you're both employed and I'm not trying to get you into trouble. What's the hardest part about doing this work? 
I would say as a strategist, so taking out the multicultural part and you know that qualifier, I've always thought that strategists have it really pretty hard in the, in the comms world because I think a lot of people still don't understand it. It's still a relatively new discipline in advertising and PR. So you find yourself spending maybe like 20% of your t- time explaining your job and why you need to be in a room and not like when you could be using that time to actually do your job. So I do find that challenging. And I still find that that's the case even in 2022, that you have to do that. So I think that's the most frustrating part about being a strategist. The most frustrating thing about being a multicultural strategist is that people sometimes, they define multicultural strategy just as in this case, they have the data definition of it and you have to kind of explain to them what that means in 2022. So I have to constantly do that. So uh, ironically, multicultural strategist has a brand problem. Yeah. And so does strategy too, actually, that you mentioned. So I I think that's the common thing. So multicultural strategy has an issue, but strategy itself has an issue. So imagine being a multicultural strategist. It's like double. (laughs) You have to sell yourself on two fronts, you know. I agree with both points Kate mentioned. Uh, Definitely resonate with your first point of the challenge of just being a strategist at CodeWord. It's fairly a new practice. We've just built the team. There's about 12 of us as of the last eight months or so. I think people are still internally are trying to figure out what it is that we actually do. It's, it's primarily a lot of writers that have gone agency side. I guess in terms of, again, not a multicultural strategist by title, but I guess, you know, who I am can brings that forward to some degree. Quite honestly, I don't bring it forward on a day-to-day basis. It's honestly something I'm still trying to figure out. It's something I hope that I'm bringing again, integrated in the work I do day to day, no matter what. It's even like a lens I don't think I should have to think about, if that makes sense, because I feel like I'm naturally bringing that. As a firstborn Indian American Muslim, that is the part that makes me a strong strategist is just who I am, quite frankly. It's not that either of you have to represent one point of view either, but what I'm hearing from you, Sahir, is that you naturally bring it. And Kate would agree probably identify with that. She naturally brings it. But also I'm hearing that we actively need to focus on it. And they're not opposites, right? So someone might listen to that and go, but what What are you saying? You're saying two things and how do you reconcile that? Can you help me reconcile if someone's like, it sounds like they're mixed messages? Well, it sounds that way because we're in a transitional period in America where you can, both need to kind of happen. The ideal America and what America will be is that you'll naturally bring it. It will be just like a default thing in America because that's who we're becoming. We're becoming a nation of where people of color are highly represented and have high influence. So you won't feel as focused on it in the near future because that will be the default identity of America. But we're not quite there. Like we're inching our way there. So you have to be focused on it while still kind of having it come naturally. So it's, it's a weird space we're in right now as a country and, and then consequently as in, in advertising because we're kind of in that transitional period. That's why we're kind of living in both worlds. You have one foot in. I'm really hyper-focused on it. And I want to make sure that people know that this is still a thing and we still need to you know, account for it. And there's this other foot in, but it's a default and we're naturally all becoming that. It's a transitional period. So you're right that it feels confusing, but transitional periods usually feel confusing because you're, you have a one foot in each. And from my perspective, it's a lot of just trial and error, right? I think all of these are just solutions that speak to us that we're trying to put forward and take some sort of action, right? Action is better than no action. You know, we tweak and we see what works better moving forward. And hopefully we're learning from this transitional process. 
big question, but let's say someone is managing an agency, running an agency, and they latch onto the idea of doing brand strategy for a new America. And they know that they're transitioning, but maybe they actually realize they're early, very early in the transition. What are some of the more difficult questions that that person with their team is going to need to answer as a team in order to make that transition happen? I think it all depends on like who your clients are, I mean, you're working on. If you have a client who's future focused and is not just kind of focused on boosting sales now, but kind of, you know, growing the business long term. That's a question you need to kind of ask yourself that what are my clients' business goals? Are they looking for boosting sales now? And do they only measure success by that? Or do they have kind of a longer term growth plan? I think they have a long term growth plan. You can show them that this aligns better with that because we are moving towards this and we're moving fast towards it. It's not that far away either. I think this is like the reality of America, maybe in the next like five to 10 years, if not sooner. So I think it's just a matter of like the main question you have to ask is that are you working for clients? Or are you serving clients who are only looking at how you impact their bottom line now or clients that also want to project five years from now and see how you, you impact their bottom line? And if the answer is the latter, then definitely this kind of new approach to approaching strategy for a new America is more applicable and useful for them. So step one is probably the dual question. As an agency, are we here for the long term or are we going quarter by quarter? And then do we have clients who are here for the long term? Are they going quarter by quarter? Step one. Step two, let's say they say yes. What are some of the other questions that they're going to need to focus on? From a product standpoint, because products historically, because product development, I, I feel, moves a lot slower than the market in many cases, right? So maybe from a product standpoint, kind of examining your portfolio and seeing are you actually creating products for a new America? Because we can also position products for this new America, but if they're not serving that cohort, then why? And we've recently had this conversation on some of the accounts that I've worked on, for instance, on Vaseline, creating new formulas or products by doing focus groups with people of color and making sure that their input is incorporated into the product. So I think product development is also a huge part of it and making sure that the client is integrating that voice into their products. For now, so that five years from now, they're already well integrated and they're not just trying to do it then when the market finally shifts. Is there a question that I haven't asked that you're hoping to answer? I have a main takeaway that I'd like to put out there, but not a question. I guess my main takeaway is that we are in a transitional period in America where you kind of have one foot in multicultural marketing still kind of as a specialty and another foot in it being mainstream. Multicultural marketing is mainstream and it should be that way. My goal as a multicultural strategist is to help at least the people in my agency and in my department make the transition from it being a specialty to it being mainstream, for it to being the default in communications. My dream is that every strategist should be a multicultural strategist. I don't have to have the qualifier because in five to 10 years, we all function and operate as that. And that's kind of just the general takeaway that I want to be taken here is that I'm here to help make that transition possible from that kind of phase two that I talked about to the phase three, where multicultural marketing or people of color our mainstream and communications in America as a whole. I love that. Sayed, do you have a final point that you would like to make? Sure. Yeah. I didn't honestly think about it, but this conversation has been very riveting. And, you know, for me, it really is about doing the work myself too and being more conscious of it. We're talking about how diverse Dallas is becoming, but at the same time, it's the type of city too, where it's very easy to just be in your own world. We don't rely on public transportation and I'm fortunate and I have my own house and 
I can go in my car with AC and go from destination A to B and not interact with a lot of people. And, you know, that's part of what stimulates us as strategists is all that action that's happening and and all that good stuff in, in larger cities. I feel like I need to do a better job of putting myself out there more in this type of work. Bring that side of me forward. Bring this, that's the her forward in my day-to-day job. It's a cultural thing too, where, you know, being Indian, you have to be, you're grown to be very timid and shy and not have opinions on things. And it's, uh, but there's the American side of me where it's like, you do have opinions and you, you need to showcase that more. And so it's just this internal battle with myself. And I've found this to be my lens and I want to, to push that forward. So I guess this is another key takeaway that I'm getting from this conversation is a lot of these solutions can sometimes feel like Band-Aid solutions versus others are more paramount and they're getting in the weeds. And it's about doing a little bit of, you know, having those Band-Aid solutions become a bigger thing. It's like, it's incremental progress, I guess, is what I'm trying to get at as well. Like, I think, you know, it's taking those tiny steps, but making sure that those tiny steps are substance in those tiny steps. And then at some point, 10 years from now, when we look back, we can feel like it's an actual reflection of the world that we live in. It's such a complicated topic. And I feel like diversity, DEI, it just gets thrown around so much. I think sometimes agencies are just reacting, right, at the top level, and they're not doing the foundational work that needs to happen for this. There's more work to be done. And I just appreciate you, Mark Pollard and, and Kate, just being so honest and just vulnerable too at times and trying to voice what you're thinking. Because oftentimes we're all just stuck in our heads and it just stays in your heads and can't have conversations about it and have people challenge you. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Kate, if people want to find you on the internet to uh, have a conversation, where should they look? My full name is Catherine, obviously, but I, I go by Kate. So you can find me on LinkedIn under Catherine Enderley if you're really looking and you desperately want to connect with me. You can find me on LinkedIn as well. And, you know, add me on Instagram too. See the real me. And that's just my first and last name. I really appreciate you both being here. I hope that you feel that you had enough time to get into some of these topics. And I wish you only the best. I hope you change the country. I hope you change Dallas. I hope you feel fulfilled. I hope you bring people through as you graduate into a bigger positions of power and influence because you deserve it. Thanks so much, Mark. Thank you, Mark. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sweathead. If it's your first time here, please subscribe. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with a friend or leave a kind rating. For more information about our strategy classes, events, and books, visit www.sweathead.com. And yes, you can find us on Instagram at, at sweathead.